to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8. If I asked you, what's the book of Nehemiah about? That's not a real hard question. Book of Nehemiah, what's Nehemiah about? Nehemiah was not a contemporary of Paul. You know, flannel graph aside. Um, what's, the, what's Nehemiah about? Rebuilding. Rebu- the first half is about rebuilding the wall. And then I've heard uh, pastors, commentators say, Nehemiah is really about rebuilding a people. You know, the, the wall's broken down and Nehemiah uh, mourns over it and then he gives his life to rebuilding it in 52 days. It's remarkable. And, you know, you think you get to the building of the wall and in some ways you feel like you could roll the credits. That's, that's the story. You know, it was success. Uh, but then you begin having uh, dealing with the people and right after we have the building of the wall, what do you have, I think, uh, six chapters of that? And then you have uh, chapter seven. You have um, kind of a, a list, a genealogy of all the people. But you get to chapter eight, and you start having the, the rebuilding or the continuation of the rebuilding of the people, and it's, it's all about worship. And uh, we're going to kind of read another high watermark of Scripture when it comes to corporate worship, Old Testament. And uh, there's no angels in this one, all right? We're not seeing the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, this is kind of a more, you know, human, nor a more mundane service, but a lot of good examples for us. Let me first give you a couple uh, of my favorite definitions of worship. I told you that the word Worship in English is worthship. We're talking about the worthiness of a person. Usually in Hebrew, uh, you can go the rest of your life without knowing this, but uh, in Hebrew, the word shaka means to bow down, to do homage. Old and New Testament both, the key concept of worship is bowing down. The, the physical expression of worship is often bowing down. Um, used to quote from the Psalms, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, he is our God, Uh, we're the people of his pasture. Well, uh, the word shaka talks about this this physical prostration and awe and reverence, Um, kind of funny. As a pastor, I speak in public all the time, if you speak in public all the time, you're going to say some really stupid things. And... um, the word prostrate is one of those that uh, it, it just terrifies me. Um, and, and people I preach to know that because right before saying it, I, I don't want to say prostate. I want to say prostrate. And I pause for a moment to think. And then even if I say it right, people chuckle. Um, so I just say, just fall down on your face. That's a safer description. Uh, but that, that falling down, uh, Pastor read it from, uh, Psalm 95, 6, let us worship and bow down, kneel. The New Testament word that's uh, most often translated as worship is proskuneo. You don't need to know that. Um, I only say that because there's some Greek. Um, your, your pastor used to teach Greek. I want to prove to him that I 
um, am aware of the word, and that, that's about as far as my uh, language skills go. So um, no, no danger of me teaching a Greek class here. But, but again, the idea is falling down. So Revelation 4.10 says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him. So it's, it's kneeling, falling down. And then the other word that's used in the New Testament is latruo. It means to serve and actually is used in Romans 12.1. It's your reasonable service. So worship isn't only singing. And worship isn't only, um, you know, some, some words of affirmation to God, but actually your service to Him. There, there's a sense in which you come to church and you work in the nursery and you're worshiping. You know, you're, you're serving God. It's meaningful. And you, you live a life of obedience to the Lord as worship. And I say that because for many people, they talk about, they come to church for the worship followed by the preaching. And what they mean by the worship is what? The music. You know, singing is worship, and then you have preaching. Well, actually, everything in the service is worship. And we're going to talk about that from Nehemiah um, 8 and 9 today. But I would actually say preaching is kind of the, maybe the capstone of worship in a corporate meeting, because Rather than our speaking to God, our affection, under, under the, the preaching of the word, we're sitting and listening. We're ascribing worth to him, value to him, by listening to what he has to say attentively. So it's not like preaching, you know, the worship stops and you've started learning, lecturing. You're worshiping God just by saying, God, I want to hear what you have to say. Um, worship is, is kind of a conversation God speaks and we respond. He speaks through his word and we respond with prayers and songs and our obedience. G. Campbell Morgan, British pastor uh, in the late 1800s, I think, um, said the true ideal of worship is that of man's communing with God. Okay, communing, it's, it's fellowship. It's communication. It's not distant. It's actually very personal. It's very intimate. I like that. A.W. Tozier calls it, uh, and th this is kind of an intimate description. He says, um, worship is the continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the souls of redeemed men and women. It is the throbbing heart of the New Testament religion. All right. And the reason I like that is we could talk about a worship service, and, you know, in, in our fundamental Baptist churches, what is worship? You stand up, you give announcements, you read scripture, turn in your hymnal, you do this, and then, you, you know, then we have the preaching, and then you have the invitation, and, and it's check, 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 and it, it could be done by rote. But no, worship is actually much more intimate. It's, it's time together. You know, if I'm, if I'm with my wife... And I, you know, I kind of have a, a service, and uh, Lori calendar says today is our anniversary, and so as required, I have bought you flowers and a card. I want to tell you I love you. Check, check, check. We're good. 
Right? She, she would not be impressed. Worship isn't just a duty or a list of things. There's, there's a delight in it. There's, a, there's an affection to it. I love that. Um, Warren Wiersbe calls it an adoring response. There's adoration. And, and again, response to what God has said. So Warren Wiersbe in his book, Real Worship, says, Worship is the response of all that man is to all that God is and does. When he says all of man... Jesus said we're to love the Lord, our God, with what? Heart, soul, mind, strength. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6. But all of us is responding to him in worship and delight. Lig Duncan talks about corporate worship or a church gathering. Um, I like to say a church gathering. You You understand, you are the church. Uh, my brother-in-law pastors in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's the only sign I've seen that's like it. Their, their church sign, instead of saying, it used to say uh, Eastmont Baptist Church, and it would say, the place where Eastmont Baptist Church meets. You know, the small letters, the place where Eastmont Baptist Church meets. This isn't the church. The walls aren't the church. The brick isn't the church. You're the church. And There's a gathering of God's people. Lig Duncan says, it is a family meeting with God. It is the covenant community engaging with God, gathering with His people to seek the face of God, to glorify and enjoy Him, to hear His word, to revel in the glory of union and communion with Him, to respond to His word, to render praise back to Him, to give unto Him the glory due His name. A lot of these quotes are coming from a book called Give Praise to God. Uh, it's thick. You know, the, the one you got is, is manageable uh, by Matt Merker. Give Praise to God is, is just full of good teaching on worship. Um, John Piper says, genuine affections for God are the essence of worship. Uh, he talks about worship as us together going hard after God. Okay, the reason I'm giving you all these descriptions going hard, communing, affection, adoration. Worship isn't just, you know, stained glass, pipe organ, hymns, and a blessing. Uh, Worship is a matter of the heart. Alan Cairns used to pastor a free Presbyterian church in Greenville, has a, a dictionary on theological terms. He describes worship as pure adoration of God in which the worshiper is taken up with the glory of what the Lord is. He's, he's, he's taken up with it. I, I said in the first session, wonder, awe, amazement, just, you know, we get so used to things. What do they say? Familiarity breeds contempt. We get so used to things that we're just kind of like, oh yeah. I mean, you know, God became man, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, died, rose again. Oh, like, that's remarkable. You know, I, I said at the end, it, it would sound to an Orthodox Jew blasphemous to point at a 33-year-old man who is sweaty and his feet are dirty and say, that's Jehovah. And you can understand why they would stone Paul for saying something like that, or Paul would stone Stephen for saying something like that. It's audacious. It's amazing. Never stop being amazed by what the Bible teaches us. So, 
So all of those things are included, including a life of obedience. You know, you're worshiping Monday through Saturday as well. But then the elements of worship, you know, the components, the, the parts of, of life that are worship, uh, I want to just unpack quickly. The focus of the first session was God. The focus of this session is going to be the Bible. Then the focus of the last session this morning is going to be us. And that's, that's not a bad order to put them in. All right, let's read Nehemiah chapter 8 together. They've built the wall, overcome opposition. Now they're building the people, and they're doing that through the, the reading of the Word. Nehemiah 8, there's going to be a bunch of names in here, and um, those of you who are going to be preachers, just read them with confidence and, um, and don't look back. Pretend you said it right. And um, if there's a deacon who's been giving you a hard time, have him read scripture the day when there's a bunch of names. Just, it's a trick of the trade. Here we go, Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man. I love that unity. As one man into the street that was before the water gate. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. All right, and everybody else was in the nursery. Um, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they made for the purpose, and beside him stood uh, Mattathiah and Shema, and Anaiah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, on his left hand, uh, let me take a breath, on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Husham, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed down, they bowed their heads, rather, and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. That was a lot. What did they do? This, this is so important. They caused the people to understand the law. The people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense, they gave the meaning, and caused them to understand the reading. That is such a great description of what preaching is supposed to be. You know, whether or not it's alliterated, whether or not you use poems, illustrations, funny stories, what does it mean? And they're explaining it in clarity. I was with a group of pastors yesterday, and I told them, when you ask somebody from your church to preach, Wednesday night, Sunday night, something like that, 
it probably is a pretty good reflection of your preaching. If they get up and tell jokes and funny stories the entire time, maybe you taught them that. If they, if they you know, stretch alliteration, maybe you taught them that. Or just give the meaning of the text. That's, that's preaching. It's really that simple. Just what does this mean? Explain it to us. I love that. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, uh, which is the Tirshatha and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto, the, uh, unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, to drink, to send portions, to make great mirth. They, they celebrated. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You know, we, we joke about long sermons wearing people out. And, you know, I joke. Uh, it's supposed to be self-effacing. I, I preach a long time. Uh, probably 60 minutes was normal, uh, 55. And then I started this new role of speaking in churches as a guest preacher. And the first church that asked me to come said, you got 30 minutes. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, I, I have to talk faster or, you know, maybe not say so much. But we joke about short sermons. These people rejoiced. They were full of mirth. It's a Christmas word. They, they were full of joy, happiness, because they understood the Bible. You know, you're, you're blessed to have a pastor that studies the Word and is passionate about communicating the Word to you. And, um, you know, if I riff on that for just a second, you might think that that kind of expository preaching is normal, it's not normal. You know, now I'm visiting churches, and sometimes it's disheartening to hear uh, what, what preaching is not. I've had people, um, please don't take this as boasting, you don't know me well. Um, had a man come to our church in Ohio. He'd been saved for, you know, 20-some years. I preached a normal sermon, and he came up to me afterwards. He said, Pastor... That was the best sermon I have heard in my life. And you think, like, man, you're bragging. And I was, I actually told the guy, I am so sorry to hear that. That, that is a really sad statement. Somebody opened the Bible, explained it, and applied it. And I think that's happening everywhere. You know, what else would you do? And he said, I've never heard something like that, which was terrible. He eventually became uh, a leader in our church, uh, was an elder in our church, uh, also teaching and, and helping shepherd. And I remember a time when he preached a message, and I came up to him afterwards, and I said, uh, Chris, I just want you to know that message you preached was better than the message you heard the first time you came to church. You know, but preaching the word should be normal. You know, what else would you do if you're not just going to explain a text? But it's so uncommon. 
and uh, thank God that you're in a church, and, and I'm sure there are many churches around that do that kind of thing. The people rejoiced that they understood the words that were declared unto them. All right, understanding the Bible is our goal. Understanding the Bible is our goal. Verse 13, on the second day, um, and on the second day, we're gathered together, the chief of the fathers of the people, the priests, the Levites, and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded uh, by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. You know, the feast of booths, it's basically a national camp out. Why did they do that? To remember God's provision for them when they were in the wilderness. So now they all have homes, but they would have this, this remembrance of what it used to be like, so they appreciated what God had done. I used to tell people, we met for 12 years in a public high school, dirty, um, for 12 years, we're carrying in hymnals, carrying them back out, carrying in there's equipment, carrying it back out. Uh, church growth experts say that, you know, the key to church growth, uh, whatever else happens, you know, preaching, eh, but you better have a really nice nursery. Ours was disgusting. Um, you know, we'd find out that there's a staph infection uh, in the school on the wrestling mats or something, and just like, ugh. Uh, we, had, we had a family, came to the church, and during the song service, they looked down the, the row, and their five-year-old son was chewing gum. And they were like, no, Mom, did you give him gum? I didn't give him gum. And he had peeled it off of the chair. And uh, the fact that they ever came back was just, you know, proof of the sovereign hand of God. Because there was no reason they should have kept coming. There's dirty words on the back. But the Lord is building a church, even though we had no building. Eventually, the Lord allowed us to build a building. And I threatened the people, we should do a Feast of Booths. Once a year, we should go back to the high school and meet to appreciate what we have. And we decided, no, nah, let's not. But that's what they did in Israel. They, they would go in tents to remember what God had done for them in the past. So they're reading the law. This meeting was Ezra teaching the teachers, and then they would go teach the people. And they realized that they hadn't been keeping this law. So they're learning that they should do this. Verse 15, uh, they should... Publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in the courts, in the courts of the house of God and in the streets of the water gate and the streets of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them uh, that were come uh, again out of captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, unto, the day, unto that day, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to, according to the manner. All right, we could, we could keep on going in uh, chapter 9, but you're having this revival of the people. And, you know, I, I describe worship as something that is very emotive, very personal, 
very relational. In this text, we've seen people standing out of reverence for the word. They are raising their hands for joy. They are kneeling and falling on their face. They're weeping. They're told, don't weep because this is a happy time. They understand it, so they're full of joy. And then they go out and they say, well, the Bible says to do that. We're not doing that. We need to start. So now they, they obey the word. And for them, obeying the word in this, uh, in this circumstance was to keep this feast and have this camp out. And, and there was joy. And what I want to point out in this session is just the Bible focus of true worship. You know, the Bible focus of true worship. And, and here's the key. I think there's a lot of, it used to be charismatic churches, and um, their focus was on music. And, you know, the worship was, they might have 45 minutes of singing and 15 minutes of preaching. And then that stopped being so charismatic and just kind of became the seeker model um, where you, you have worship that is, you know, it, it, it's moving people to, to joy and applause. And then it's moving people, you know, you take it down and it, there's something that's more reflective. And, and people are so moved and then you have a quick sermonette. You know, one writer said, this is the day of the sermonette. Sermonettes make Christianettes. All right, so you go to church, you have this emotive experience, you're sweating, you're crying. I sit down, and then there's a little bit of life advice from a life coach, and he's, you know, telling you a few things that'll, you know, make your life better. And, and then you go home, and that was worship. Actually, worship is Worship is very intellectual. By that I mean, I, I don't mean to be elitist. I mean, it's just, it's based in Bible revelation. It's based in the truth of Scripture. You worship the Lord with your heart and your mind. You're, you're, you're thinking. You're, you're not ignoring truth. And the worship in this revival the people had disobeyed God. He, as promised, put them into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. He brought them back. They rebuild the wall. Eventually, they're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the people. And in all of this time, they studied the scriptures. You know, what is it, Ezra 7.10? Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. We are people of the book. Okay, so the churches I've pastored, I want the singing to be better. I want it to not be so stoic. Can I be critical of us a second? We're pretty stoic. You know, I was, I was taught to sing, and um, you sing with one foot slightly in front of the other, see so if, you know, you, nobody's going to knock, knock you over if they try. And, and you get good breath support, good diaphragm. We would have practices. So it's coming from down here. And, and then you stand with your hands at the side and you sing like this. You know, or, you know this is acceptable. You can do this. You know, you know why Baptists use hymnals? So nobody raises their hands. We, we need something to contain them, you know. It's very staid. Now, when I was taught to preach... I remember I was, I was speaking one time, 
and um, I preached, and the person listening was kind of a bombastic preacher. He says, man, you are not just giving an academic lecture. You are preaching the Word of God. Show some emotion. Get out from behind the pulpit. Use hand gestures. So I'm supposed to preach, and it's supposed to be emotive and intense and expressive. So I did that, but the guy grading my sermon that time was a different preacher, and he said, Chris, stop yelling at us. You sound like you're mad. And I just decided, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to be you guys. But I was taught to preach with intensity. But when we sing, we stand like this. You know, music, by its very nature, is more emotional than speech. But we're taught to be very, you know, Spock-like, be very reserved. Well, these, these people weren't that. They'd raise their hands, they'd weep, they'd kneel down, they'd bow down, but it was still rooted in the book. They were people of the book. In fact, it, came, it says several times that they built a pulpit so that the reading of the Scripture was above them, you know, kind of the central focus. I, I say in heaven, the focus in heaven is around the throne and everybody's looking to Jesus. Jesus isn't, isn't here in body. The focus of the church is on the Word. Literally, in church history, the focus of the church is on the Word. One of the symbolic shifts of the Reformation was... Um, the moving of the pulpit. In a Roman Catholic church, you might have a lectern on the side, but what, what was in the middle? The middle was the altar, because what happened there? Well, the body and blood of Christ. You know, uh, the bread was turned into his body, the, the wine was turned into his blood, you have that uh, transubstantiation, and every Mass, there is a new sacrifice of Jesus, which, by the way, is blasphemy. You know, Jesus finished His cross work. It is finished. And when He finished it, He sat down. You know, He was offered for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. So, the Catholic Church put that as the centerpiece, the hocus-pocus, body and blood, and they, they put the, the speaking, uh, the, the sermon, what do they call that? I'm sorry? Homily. You know, that, that's to the side. And the reformers actually shifted, and the pulpit became the focus of the church. It was moved to the middle. This is a gathering of the people of God to hear the word of God. And we see that example way back, you know, this would be 2,500 years ago, you know, roughly 500 years before Christ. They're gathering under the word. So when we talk about the elements of corporate worship, 
I want to put it this way, and I'll, I'll try to be quick about it, but I'm speaking primarily, I'm speaking primarily of corporate worship when we gather as the church on a typical Sunday morning to worship the Lord. What are we doing? We gather to read the Word. We gather to read the Word, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 5. They bring out the book, they, they elevate it, and they read it. Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the reading of the Word. 1 Timothy 4.13, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Just reading the Word is a key component of worship. You know, I, um, we started today, before we sang a song, before I preached or taught or, you know, rabbit trail or whatever this is, before any of that, pastor started us by reading from Psalm 95 and 96. The rhythm of worship is that God speaks and we respond. So when we gather, the reading of Scripture isn't just perfunctory. It's not check it off. It's not out of habit. You know, what, whatever your service order, you know, everybody but Baptist calls it liturgy, but whatever your service order, the reading of Scripture is a sacred thing. We're commanded to read the Word. Now, we're blessed that you actually have copies of the Scriptures yourself, an embarrassing number of copies of Scripture. You know, some of them are leather-covered, some of them have cloth. You have them on your phone, on your computer, multiple versions. We are so blessed. These people didn't have personal copies of Scripture, so they're sitting under the teaching, and they're, they're listening, they're standing, and it's all day long, they're listening, and they're, they're fixated on the Word. When we gather for worship, we're reading the Word, and when we read the Word, that's worship. We're listening to what God has to say. And, and the reading of the Word, I'm not saying that there's never an explanation, but the preaching of the Word is different. The preaching of the Word is, is what we saw later in the text when they're going to the people and explaining what it means and, and you know, how it applies to their lives. And that's valuable. Paul's going to tell Timothy, preach the Word. Okay, but when you're preaching the Word, I, I kind of joke like when you're reading Scripture, you know your sermon is accurate. When you're preaching, yeah, you know, you might be messing something up. I hope not. You know, try not to. I will pray before I preach and say, Lord, help me to speak today with clarity and with accuracy. I want to rightly divide the word of truth. I want to handle it right. But, but in the reading of Scripture, there really isn't a human component. You're just reading it. Now, occasionally you might explain, you know, what this means is, but you're just reading. When we gather... We read the Bible and it's worship. We preach the Bible and that's worship. You know, when, when Paul tells Timothy in um, 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, preach the word. Do you know what came just before that? What comes before 2 Timothy 4? You, you can do this, even if you're not... Um, you know, a student at Pensacola Christian College. 2 Timothy 3 comes before 2 Timothy 4. Where are you going to get insight like that? <laughs> 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Timothy, continue in what you've learned, been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them. 
the, 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 the scriptures are able to make you wise into salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We have a chapter break, somewhat unfortunate, because the thought continues. And so I charge you before God who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Preach the word. Why do you preach the word? Because only the word can make people wise to salvation. Only the word is inspired and inerrant. Only the word is profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, righteousness. Only the word can build people up so they are equipped unto every good word. It's the word. So when we gather, I love Christian music. I write hymns. You know, like I'm very invested in Christian music. But we gather around the word. Not the hymn, no. We gather around the Word, and our, our worship is the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word, and you know, whether it's preaching or teaching is all good teaching preaches, all good preaching teaches, but you're explaining and applying the Word. Hughes Oliphant Old, Bible scholar, says, preaching is not an auxiliary activity to worship nor is it some kind of preparation for worship with a, uh, which one hopes will follow. The preaching and the hearing of the Word of God is in the last analysis, worship. Worship in the most profound sense. So when your pastor is preaching, you're worshiping God, and if you're, if you're checking scores or, you know, just texting or playing a game or, you know, Facebook posting, tweeting, whatever you're doing. That was for old people, young people, whatever you do. There's an irreverence to that. You know, God deserves our attention. Our minds shouldn't be wandering. And, and we have to kind of lean in. Preaching is hard, and now I'm learning listening to preaching is hard. And you have to, have to lean in and focus and, if necessary, take notes, but agree and think along. It's all part of our worship. I'll read this from Al Mohler just because I, I like the statement. I know we've got to wrap up. Mohler says about this text, he says, This remarkable text presents a portrait of expository preaching. Once the text was read, it was carefully explained to the congregation. Ezra did not stage an event or orchestrate a spectacle. He simply and carefully proclaimed the word of God. The expositor is not an explorer who returns to tell tales of the journey, but a guide who leads the people into the text and teaches the arts of Bible study and interpretation, even as he demonstrates the same. All right, it's good, it's good stuff. You're, you're explaining the text. If a preacher, I, I remember a time, you know, a preacher would come to chapel, and once in a while he'd come up with some fanciful thing that you're like, where did that come from? One time a, a guy uh, came to a Bible class after chapel, and he was all amazed. He says, you know, Dr. So-and-so, that was amazing. I would never have gotten that out of the text. And the professor didn't want to throw the speaker under the bus, but he says, well, neither would I. You know, it wasn't there. Good preaching 
doesn't do some sleight of hand to show you something that nobody else would have thought of before. It just teaches people how to read the Bible. You know, you learn how to read the Bible by the way the pastor preaches the Bible. You learn how to teach and preach the Bible by listening to your pastor. You know, I was under the ministry of uh, Mark Minnick for a long time and just learned to preach by listening to good preaching. It's important. Just line upon line. And, you know, in this scene, there was, there was no light, no strobes, no smoke machine, just the Word, and it was plenty. Okay, when we gather for worship, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we obey the Bible, and they did it with these feasts, but we did just do what it says. Okay, we, we pray the Bible. We pray the Bible. Chapter 9, they're going to have this prayer of confession that says, God, you judged us and we deserved it because we were idolaters and you sent us into captivity. Now you've brought us out. We praise you. But they're praying Scripture. You know, when, when you're praying, do you pray phrases of Scripture? Not, not just out of habit, not just multiplying words like the Pharisees, but, but you're claiming promises of God. All right, let me tell you a pet peeve. Um, when someone is praying for a fellow Christian in a hard time, you know, say, say I'm, I'm praying for your pastor, and I pray, um, Lord, would you please be with Sam? I mean, it's an easy request. Be with Sam. Why, why does that bug me? Yeah, he already, he already said he would be. He will never leave nor forsake Sam. So I don't have to ask him to be with Sam. I, I know what you mean. So, you know, next time you hear somebody in church say that, don't roll your eyes. You know, say like, okay, you know, Lord, interpret this, improve on it. You know, um, and, and God does that. You know, he fixes our prayer. I'm so glad for that. We don't know what we should pray for, Romans 8, and the Spirit, you know, takes our, our foolish prayers and interprets them and makes them just right. You know, I, I compare him to Ruppel Stiltskin. He takes the straw of my prayer and turns it into gold. So every time I pray, I start in Jesus' name. I pray, and then at the end, I'm like, now fix whatever I messed up. Truly. God, please do exceeding abundantly beyond what I've asked or thought. And whatever way my requests are flawed, just please do better. Answer better than I asked. And, and he does. He's so gracious. But, but don't pray, you know, be with someone. Say, Lord, I thank you that you're with Sam, and I pray that you would remind him, encourage him, you know, but, but you're praying biblical prayers. Uh, D.A. Carson has a great book on using the New Testament prayers as models for our prayers. Uh, so we pray the scriptures, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, Okay, so the best songs we're singing are songs that are saturated with Scripture. We're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow. That's the, the book I just uh, wrote that I, I had hoped to bring, but it's not finished, uh, not published yet. But Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are saturated with Scripture. In fact, the psalms are scripture. We should be singing psalms, but then we sing hymns and spiritual songs that are the result of the word dwelling in us. So what do we have? We, we read the Bible, 
We preach the Bible. We obey the Bible. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. You're going to feel like this is a stretch, but there's a sense in which we, we picture the Bible. And I'm thinking of our ordinances when we gather for the Lord's table. You know, we're remembering Christ. There's not a new crucifixion, but we're remembering what he did. And, and we have an image, a, a reminder. We picture it through the bread and the juice. When we have a baptism, it's a visible reminder of what God has done for us, but it's still coming to us from the Scripture. And even in the ordinances, they're so precious. Don't, don't let your mind wander. Baptism happens once, kind of as a, as a reminder that you have been saved, joined with Christ, identified with His crucifixion, His resurrection, to walk in newness of life, and you're never going to do that again. So when somebody gets baptized, urge them, like, really concentrate and, and appreciate what's happening here because it's only going to happen once. The Lord's table, you're going to, happen, you're going to have it regularly, quarterly, monthly. But you, you have an ongoing reminder, and the Scriptures doesn't tell you how often to do it. It just says, as often as you do it. But we have this picture, and it's, I, I say it's picturing the Word, and even our offerings... I say through our offerings, we're supporting the scriptures. Okay, what do I mean? We're, we're helping to fund ministry and, and missions and outreach. We're helping to, to pay uh, staff and we're helping to keep the lights on. But it's all centered in the word. So don't get in your mind that, you know, singing is worship and then we kind of do the boring stuff. Actually, everything that we do when we gather is part of our worship. And and we probably could carry this out even into fellowship and encouragement, the, the conversations we have. It's all about the Word. So focus of the first lesson is worship is, is, is exalting God. It's, it's fixation with Him. But the fixation of God is, is also coming to us through the Scriptures. Okay, so we are people of the book. And, um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of good books uh, the Matt Merker book is a good book. There's a Bob Coughlin book called Worship Matters. Good book. I, I mentioned Give Praise to God. Good book. This, this is our book. You know, there's other ones help us understand this, but this is our book. Uh, ne never get so enamored reading Spurgeon that you forget about the book. You know, this is what we're worshiping, and, and it's not what we're worshiping. It's, it's telling us how we worship. God has told us how to worship. I'll, I'll finish with this, take a short break, and then last sermon is going to be like super short. Spurgeon does that all the time, so I don't feel so bad. Spurgeon's preaching, his first point takes like eight pages, his second point takes three, and his last point's a paragraph. <laughs> so I feel better about that. Okay, go study this at home. Bye-bye. Um, imagine I'm trying to honor my daughter, Rebecca. Uh, she's my oldest you know, we would have birthday parties. Imagine she turns five. I'm going to honor her. Uh, I have a cake, and it's decorated with a golf scene. I enjoy golf. You know, so, so my daughter's cake has a golf scene, a little miniature golfer. And then when she opens her present, I got her a new commentary on the book of Ephesians. She's going to love it. And, and, you know, for the activity, we're going to go watch an Ohio State football game and eat some wings and ribs. And you would say, that's ludicrous. 
that all sounds like stuff that you like. But, but you're supposed to be celebrating her. Right. And when we worship, we're celebrating God. And we don't just bring the stuff that we like and, you know, hope it's passable. We open the Bible and say, what do we learn about God that tells us how to worship him? Who we worship determines how we worship. And, and we do it through the scriptures. And so we, we don't have to add a lot of extras. We just, we just have to be people of the book that, that do what the Bible has to say. You know, helpful? All right, amen. Let's close in prayer. God, help us to worship you better as scripture uh, identifies and explains to us how to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.